G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As parents, we always want the best for our children. We're responsible for their nurture until they can stand on their own two feet. But what if the worst case scenarios develop and you or your spouse dies or there is a separation and your children become part of a future blended family. Well, how do you deal with all the care issues around losing one or both parents and the complexities of determining how your inheritance comes to your children? Well, no doubt you've seen in your own extended family some of the complexities of what happens with inheritance and all the more difficult if there's not a legal will. So some discussion today around these issues, and you might have a question, you might have a comment to make. Our talkback line is open. Here's our talkback line number, 1-800-316-316. To join in our conversation, you might like to also leave a question or a comment on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash vision radio. Talking through these issues today, wonderful to be able to welcome back to 2020 Stephen Potts, who's a family law specialist and managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. And a special welcome back to 2020 to you, Steve. It's great to be back, Neil. Thanks. Steve, this is so, so important. Uh, we always talk about issues to do with the family. And, of course, as a family lawyer, uh, usually you're immersed in all sorts of, you know, the, the downsides, the bad scenarios, things that happen that find their way to court, family breakdown, divorce, and all of the challenges that come along with that. And, of course, a part of all of those challenges is the children, and so a bit of a focus that's specially about children today and something that affects every family because we don't know how the scenarios might develop uh, with our families. We hope that we'll nurture those those marriages and those families, that they'll be lifelong, wonderful communities that are a blessing to their entire community. Mm-hmm. But sometimes stuff goes wrong and we're not ignorant of those things. When we talk about the idea of our children and their inheriting our wealth when one day we might die, this sometimes happens quicker than we might plan and things go wrong. Mm. How do you discuss this sort of thing so far as wills and families go and the importance of those things? Well, uh, in terms of having a will or having some kind of arrangement in place, it's it's one of those fundamental things you've just got to do because the reality is all of us will die eventually. Subject to Christ coming back, we're all going to die. So something needs to be done. And at certain stages in life, it's really critical to have those arrangements in place, particularly if you've got young children, for example. There needs to be something in place to make sure that they're looked after and um, as as the nature of relationships change, that adds complexity. As people get older and the nature of their assets and things like that change and get more complicated, it's important to have things in place. And it's important to have those conversations with the family to make sure that everybody's clear on what's going to happen. 
Uh, I guess normally when you have someone set up your will for you, uh, they take you through all sorts of questionnaire type things that help you include elements that are going to be important. Uh, Some of those are going to be just scraping the surface of Mm. understanding what's important for you. And every family is going to be different, aren't they? That's right. When when you're putting a will together, you really do probably need some uh, professional uh, input into how you actually form your will. That's right, because... Ultimately, you want to make sure that your intentions actually are carried through. So if your intentions are unclear or the, the wording that you've used is unclear or hasn't been properly drafted, then that can have pretty serious consequences. And one of the most serious is then that the surviving members of your family have to make an application to the court to get clarity about what that is, which ends up costing a lot more money than ever having drafted a will in the first place. Um, and the court has to make decisions which... They'll do their best to interpret what your intentions were or what would be appropriate, but it may not actually be uh, what you asked for or what you what you wanted. So even when you have a will in place, there is room for some contention there, and people can challenge that, and uh, it could be you know it could be messy even in itself. But what about for that person who's you know why do today what you can put off until tomorrow? I'm not going to worry about a will. Yeah. Oh, I'm I'm healthy. I'm feeling well. Uh, for the person who doesn't have a will. Uh, and they've married, they have some children, mm. uh, no will in place. What's the scenario there if that person dies? Uh, what happens to their uh, things that they would be passing on or they'd like to pass on to their children? Yeah, so that's when that happens, that's called dying intestate. And um, in, typically each jurisdiction in Australia, each state in Australia has slightly different legislation. But the as a general principle, default rules kick in about who gets what, um, certain allowances are made for family homes and certain dollar amounts of money. But then there's, if you can imagine, a whole lot of rings, a bit like if you cut through a tree and there's tree rings, in the centre of the ring the ring you might have your spouse and then on the next ring out you might have children and then there's a, this ever-expanding ring of potential beneficiaries who would be entitled to various arrangements that would kick in by default if you don't have a will. Now, you might be fine with that, but you might also want to make sure that there's proper provision made for your spouse or for your children or for a particular family member who might have a particular need. You might have, a, for example, you might have a child who has a special need where the costs of um, their health care or the costs of their education might be much more uh, expensive than perhaps other able-bodied children or something like that. And so the default rules of intestacy may be completely inappropriate in that kind of situation. And as I often say, while we would like to see in the ideal situation, our families where a marriage stays together in a lifelong union and uh, children are raised in a, you know, it's like, a, you know, the perfect environment. Mm. Uh, not that there is any such thing as a perfect family. But, but when you get to the scenario of one partner dying and then uh, for the remaining partner uh, to then find a new love, a new relationship, a new romance, and then enter into that. And sometimes there's instantly a blended family, uh, or sometimes there's more children that are on the way into those future years. And those children from the initial union uh, would find themselves, in some ways, uh, possibly forgotten. And and this is this is one of the issues, isn't it? That's one of the challenges, yes, because... Here's a really simple example. If someone um, is married and they have children and they pass away and then they remarry, those that that new marriage might be the the way, sorry, during the course of that new marriage, they might purchase new assets together. They might purchase a new home, for example. And the nature of the way that they own that home would have an impact on 
where that home would go on their death. So if, for example, husband and wife from the first marriage um, had a, a property that was owned jointly as a, what we call a joint tenancy, one of them dies, let's say the wife died and it transfers to the husband. He now owns it in, in its entirety. Some years later, he meets a new lady, they get married and they decide to buy a new home together. So they buy that home as joint tenancy. If the husband then dies, then his interest in that home transfers to the new wife and the children of the first relationship would have no entitlement to that property, regardless of what a will says, because of the way that they've owned that property around the course of the relationships, it would by default end up in the hands of the uh, second wife in that situation. Now, that might be appropriate, but it might also not be appropriate. It might not have been intended by the deceased. So those are the kinds of things that you need to have a think about. And the children, they may be adult children, but they also may be infant children. And then almost certainly somebody would have to make an application to say, well, hang on a minute, there's not been a proper um, um, provision made for these children, but there could be quite limited recourse when the property's already transferred to the spouse, the new you, spouse. You might argue that having a will is good at any time from young years, but it gets even more important, doesn't it, when you've got a marriage? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when you start to have children, it becomes all the more important again. And I imagine that this needs to be updated on a regular basis. When you talk to people about uh, updating your will, how often do you think they should do that? Uh Realistically, every time there's a pretty significant change in their, uh, either in relationships or in uh, relation to the way they hold their assets. So, for example, um, if a person's not married and then they get married, um, they should make a will um, as soon as they get married or they should make a will in contemplation of being married. Um, It's prudent to make a will when one of your executors, for example, passes away um, because that person will no longer be able to carry out the terms of your will. Um, when you have children, I would suggest you make a new one each time a child is born. You can, in a sense, try and future-proof it by referring to all of the children, but it's always a sensible idea to to do that. Um, and if if a person, for example, may not have um, may not have died, let's say you might have appointed your spouse as a as an executor, but that person may have lost capacity, um, and and that's that's probably something we need to have a bit of a chat about later because that's an increasingly complicated area where people, for example, might um, might get Alzheimer's or dementia or some other kind of illness where their their testamentary capacity diminishes or it might not be immediate, it, it drifts away over time and so um, all of a sudden you might find that an executor doesn't have capacity anymore and you'll need to have a think about changing your will in those circumstances too. Now, don't want to leave anyone behind in our conversation today Mm -hmm. because it's such an important conversation to have. When we talk about some of the terminology that we use in relation to wills, when you mention executors, Mm -hmm. uh, beneficiaries, uh, guardians, Mm -hmm. uh, they all have a particular meaning. And so understanding just those those common terminologies that are used in every will are going to be important. Uh, Which ones are the most important for us to understand? Yeah, well, so the executor... The executor is the person who you name to carry out your wishes. So typically, um, they're the person who is going to be responsible for making an application to the court for what we call probate, which is basically proving that the will is a legal and valid will. And um, that person then is charged with gathering in all of the assets and making sure that they're distributed to the beneficiaries, to the people, the people who are ultimately receiving the benefit of your estate. So. Typically, that's going to be family members, but it could also beneficiaries could also include um, um, charitable organisations. Or, I mean, this radio station people may well be 
you know, financial contributors to the station and they may say, well, I want to do in death what I've always done in life, which is making a contribution. So a beneficiary doesn't have to be an individual. It can be, it could be Open Doors, it could be Compassion, it could be any other kind of charitable organisation. So um, the beneficiaries are just the people who are receiving the benefit of the will. And then guardians are the people who are going to step in and look after infant children. So when I say infant, I mean anybody under 18 technically is an infant child. So those are the three main kinds of roles that we come across in a will. Well, I want to invite listeners to join in our conversation today. You might have your own scenario to present to our guest today. It might be around wills. What happens here is the complications really kick in when there is relationship breakdown. And uh, and Steve, as a family law specialist, uh, you're across all of this sort of stuff. So a wonderful opportunity for people today uh, to get some wisdom, uh, free legal advice in one sense, uh, and, and, and hopefully that's applicable right across a whole lot of different scenarios. So at 1-800-316-316, if you have a question or you have your own scenario you'd like to run by our special guest, uh, Stephen Potts, family law specialist today. Stephen, there's some uh, some other issues here. Uh, when you've talked about wills, uh, you could actually do your own will. You can just go and get something from a news agent. You can probably download something online and uh, you can make your own will. You mentioned probate, uh, proving that that will is a legal document. Mm. Uh, you know, you could go to your lawyer and have your lawyer uh, do up your will or you could go to uh, the... Uh, uh, the uh, the government, uh, the public trustee, the public trustee, yep. and have the public trustee do your will. Uh, lots of different ways you can do it. Mm. Uh, what's the most sound uh, way that you can make sure that it's going to be easiest? Look, it would be it would be silly of me not to say get a lawyer to do it because that's what we do for yep. a living. It's it's our professional qualification. That's what we do. Um, the thing that you've got to remember is to is to make sure that it's as clear as possible and that it addresses all of the issues that you need addressed. And one of the challenges with, um, with say, buying a wheel kit and filling it in yourself is you don't necessarily – remember um, during the war in Iraq, there's the famous quote by Donald Rumsfeld, the unknown unknowns. You don't know what you don't know. Mm-hmm. And one of the challenges when you're dealing with any legal kind of issue is that if you don't know that area, you won't know the questions to ask to be included. So one of the advantages of having a lawyer is the lawyer has seen a lot of those scenarios a lot of times and knows the right the right kind of questions to ask to make sure that everything's captured. So, um, But look, you can still do that. It depends how complicated your estate is too. And so you might even start off doing your own will uh, and then you realise, oh, I'm getting married or I have children now. Mm. Or in the event of a relationship breakdown, you're probably going to need a lawyer to make sure that your will is watertight. Some people might say my assets are not, uh, you know, very significant. Mm. Uh, But that doesn't mean that your assets might not be significant in the years to come. So you've got to have this sort of aspiration towards what might happen. Absolutely. And... Um, you said before about um, people think, oh, yes, I really should get around to doing that. I mean, I, I can tell you with my family lawyer's hat on when I'm dealing with separating couples, um, there's a moment of crisis and they come and, and they're very prompt to seek advice and things like that, whereas people who want wills drafted tend to be much slower in providing instructions because there's not that same level of urgency. And what happens is that inertia um is fairly common throughout life. So people think for for years, people can think, yeah, I really need to, um, I really need to update my wills. But I had someone come and see me the other day saying, yeah, for about five years, I've been saying I really need to come and update my will. So those 
those that kind of inertia means that situation might be very different five years down the track or however long it might have been. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Talking about wills and children and our talkback line open 1-800-316-316. Stephen Potts is our guest, family law specialist, also managing director of Newman and Turner Lawyers in Brisbane. Uh, Steve, let's take a call. Let's hear from an anonymous caller in Victoria. Hello, uh, listener. Uh, what are your thoughts and do you have a question for our guest today? Oh, good morning. Uh, yeah, I have a quick question. Um, it's in regard to um, a will that um, my father has made. Um, his, his, rec- his desire is that his children from his first marriage um, be... Um, recipients of some benefit when he dies. He's 90 now, um, and he remarried when my mum died 30-odd years ago, 40 years ago, actually. Um, so we, the, the children of the first marriage, um, he wants us to receive some benefit from the house that he has and, and some money that he has. But I heard you say just before that... Um, no matter what the will says, that those children of the first marriage would not legally um, be entitled to anything. Is that is that the case? Because um, I suppose my concern is for my father's sake, even though he won't be here. Sure. Um, he's, it, it is a strong desire of his, even though you know personally I, I I will go with whatever he wants, and that's my. You know, that's my position. I'm it's a good question. Let's get a response yeah. from Steve. So, yes, what we were talking about before is a situation where the the way that people own property puts it outside of a will. So there's a there's a rule um, called the rule of survivorship, which basically means if people own property as joint tenants, then on the death of one party, their interest, the deceased's interest in that property, transfers automatically to the other person. It doesn't form part of the estate. So the issue in relation to your father's home would depend upon whether he was a joint tenant or a joint owner of that property with another person. If he's a joint tenant with that other person, it's likely that um, his interest in that home would transfer to the other person. But it would depend. Right. It would, do you know whether he owns the property with anybody else? No, he's the sole owner. Okay. Um, in those circumstances, it's more likely then that it would form part of his estate. If there's nobody else on the title, it would form part of his estate, and that would then depend on what the terms of his will were. So if his will makes a provision for you and your siblings or children from that first marriage, then that should be that should be okay. Oh, all right. That's great. Thank you for clarifying that. No trouble. Thank you so much <laughs> for you. your call. We're taking calls, 1-800-316-316, about three minutes out from news. Uh, do you have something to quickly add there, yeah, Steve? Yeah, one of the things that I thought might be helpful, Neil, is that um, people are often unsure about the way in which they own their home or their property with another person. So it might be just helpful to give a really quick overview of the two main ways that property is owned because that has an impact on the way wills work. You can own a property as a joint tenant. So let's just say you and I purchased a property as joint tenants. If I was to die, my interest in that property transfers to you under that rule of survivorship. But you and I might decide that we want to buy a property, but we want to keep things as separate as possible as well. So we might buy that property as tenants in common. And when we do that, we could still contribute equally. We might each contribute 50-50, or I might put in 10% and you might put in 90%. When uh, a person who owns a property as a tenancy in common dies, 
their interest in that property becomes part of their estate. So it doesn't transfer automatically. So that's more common in situations where you have, say, siblings who might decide to buy a property together or they want to make an investment together. It's more common for spouses to buy properties as joint tenants because you don't want to go through the hassle of transferring the property when you die. So that's one of the things to remember. So is it the case that in a first marriage you might have that property in common, but in a second marriage, supposing that scenario develops, that you might become joint tenants? Other way around. Uh, Other way around. So usually you would buy a property with your spouse, certainly if it's a first marriage, as a joint tenant, as a joint tenancy because your uh, interest would transfer to your your spouse. Oh, sorry, yeah. But when you buy the new property, and that's quite common because people might bring different amounts of money into the relationship. So one person might say, well, I can contribute 75% of the purchase of this house and the other person might contribute 25%. So they record that on the title as a tenancy in common. And... Um, You can have whatever proportion you like. It's a bit like owning shares in a company. Okay. Well, we are just a minute out from news, but let's take a call. Uh, Let's hear from Penny in Victoria. Hello, Penny. Welcome along. Hi. Um, I was listening to this conversation, and uh, this is my husband's second marriage. His first wife died, and there is a daughter who is in her 40s, married and with kids. Uh, I've got two children, one 23 and one almost 18. And my elder girl is, she's studying and she's working. She's moved out. She's okay. It's my second daughter I worry about because she's going through a very bad depression and she's not working. Now, my husband did make a will, but he he has not made me the executor. He has made my his daughter from the first marriage. Um and I don't know what's happening because he didn't show me the will. Penny, you might need to be a little bit patient with us because we're going to go to news. But if I All can right. ask you okay. to hold on the line, yes. uh, we'll yes. get some uh, some insights for you from our special guest, Steve Potts, All right. after okay. the news. So uh, All right. uh, hold on there because that's an interesting one to cover. We're back with more after Vision National News. Penny, yeah. uh, you might need yeah, to just okay. give us a quick, uh, in a nutshell, update on what your scenario is as we run this by our special guest. What I'm worried is because I haven't seen my husband's will and we've got this child who is on a antidepressant tablets for the past three and a half years. And what worries me is uh, his son-in-law or our son-in-law has said to me, he told me at the end of the day, look, uh, Melissa and her father did have own a house and we are entitled to a share in this house because what happened, I didn't want to live in the previous house that he and his wife and daughter lived in. And we sold that and I was working at that time. But since the children came, I gave up my job Mm. and I've never gone back to work. So what worries me is where do I stand? Sure. Because I made my will. He took me and we, he made, we went and made the will, and I was under the impression he was going to do the will after me. Mm. But he turned around and said, "At that time, I'll do it at a later date." Because okay, my Penny, will, let's yes. uh, let's uh, let's Steve in on this uh, for some insight. So, Penny, there's, there's a few things. Obviously, um, a person when they make their will don't usually have to disclose it to anybody. But it would be prudent of you to have that conversation with again and just make sure that you're clear about it. Um, let me talk to you in a couple of general principles um, and then from there we might be able to drill down into some more specifics. But um, 
I mentioned before that a person appoints somebody as their executor and that person then has the responsibility for carrying out the terms of the will. Um, Certainly in the jurisdiction where I live, which is Queensland, there are specific provisions in the Succession Act that say that a beneficiary of a will is entitled to see a copy of that will. I presume that there is an equivalent provision in the Victorian legislation, but you should speak to a Victorian solicitor about that um, just to confirm it. But that really only kicks in once the person has died. So after they've died, you can ask the executor for a copy of the will. And if you're named as a beneficiary in that will, then you can see a copy of it. The second general principle to say is that in most states, um, there is a fairly well-defined structure for making sure that adequate provision is made for dependents. So, <clears throat> excuse me, your, uh, you and your daughter are almost certainly going to be dependents upon your husband, particularly if you've been out of the workforce and you've changed your uh, working arrangements as a result of um, that decision. Um, even if you were not necessarily named in the will, there may still be a process by which you could apply to the court for uh, provision from the will. Again, that's something you should speak to a Victorian solicitor about because the legislation will be subtly different between state and state. But oh, yes. that's one of the things that you should have a think about. And if, if you don't have a solicitor down there um, and you'd like to leave your details, I can give you the name of someone who might be able to assist you. But in terms of general principles, it's after the person has died, you can get a copy of the will if you're a beneficiary. And if you are dependent and haven't had adequate provision made for your care, then there's often grounds on which you could make an application to the court. But of course... Um, the better scenario where possible is to have that discussion with your husband now just to make sure that it is clear between everybody because if, if it's something that's causing you some stress and some angst, it's better that it be dealt with now not have it something that's sitting there and causing ongoing stress for you, particularly if you've got to care, uh, care for your daughter, for your youngest daughter, for example. She will be soon 18. This is, but because of her mental status, she's, you know, yeah, I'm worried about her. There's sure. no school, nothing. Mm. Uh and so that, that, right. feed, that feeds into that question of her level of um, dependence um, on your husband as well. Okay, Penny. All right, yes, uh, yes. Penny, I'll put you on hold and uh, we'll get your details. And uh, if there is a way that, as uh, Stephen Potts says, uh, he can connect you with a solicitor in Victoria, that might be useful for you. I'll put you on hold. We'll take your details in just a few moments. Steve, let's come back to uh, perhaps children, and maybe we're talking younger children here, and the sorts of care arrangements for children when one or both parents die. Uh, what ought we be thinking about by 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 way of uh, what's included in the will mm. there to ensure that our children are looked after? Sure. So let's start with some general principles. Um, each parent has parental responsibility for a child, unless a court removes it. So regardless of whether uh, parents have separated, regardless of whether you've ever made an application to the family court, parents have parental responsibility for their children. And that means all of the duties that go with decision-making and and looking after them on their day-to-day and their big-picture issues. So the default position is that if a person, um, if if parents die, the surviving parent just retains all of that parental responsibility for the child. So... um, Where it gets complicated is if one parent has already died and then the second parent dies and the children are still under 18, or uh, the parents have separated and they then want to give parental responsibility to somebody else other than the other natural parent. So 
those are the two scenarios that you've got to have in, um, have in your mind. So let's deal with the first situation where the relationship hasn't broken down, but one of the one of the parties might have died, or you both might die together. I mean, that's the other you know the, the kind of situation that people often talk about is well, what happens if we were in a motor vehicle accident? Um, my spouse and I, I think I was telling you just before off air, my wife and I were driving somewhere on Saturday night. Somebody else was looking after our kids. The uh, the lawyer in me says, well, what happens if tonight's the night where somebody T-bones us? You know, yeah. it was a pretty bleak way of living, but, you know, yeah. it's just the nature of being a family lawyer, I guess. Yeah. But the, the important thing in a situation like that is to make sure that you will specifies who you would like to be the guardian for your children and um, whether it be one or two people and um, when that will take effect. So... Um, that person who's given those powers of guardianship effectively steps into your shoes to be able to make sure that they can make decisions for uh, your children. So that would be where they might live, um, decisions about where they continue to go to school, all of those kinds of things. So at, at a most basic level, you need to make sure that you have thought about somebody you trust who would uh, be able to look after these children and be able to step into that role if, if you and your spouse have both died. And now I imagine it's very important at that point, if you're thinking about who might be a guardian, to actually approach them uh, before putting their name in the will. Now, does does this sometimes happen that people uh, are named in a will as a guardian, but hang on a second, uh, nobody mentioned that to me? I'm sure it does. Um, (laughs) I've had had people say, oh, I'll put so-and-so, my brother or sister-in-law down, for example, um, and we'll have that conversation with them. I said, well, make sure you have had that conversation with them. Don't just assume. Um, The other thing to have a think about is, um, think about the stage of life that you're at. So if you're um, a person who has very young children, um, you might have that, your children might have a great relationship with your parents or your parents-in-law, but just think about the age differences there. If you've got very young children and the person's got to remain as a guardian until they're 18, that might make it quite difficult if you nominate your parents, for example, because they might be very sprightly 70-year-olds when your children are three, but by the time that they're 18, they're going to be in their mid-80s. So um, having to make that kind of a decision or do all of the things that are involved in caring for children can be quite complicated. So um, by all means, um, appoint parents or somebody who you trust, but also think about coming either to the same generation as you where there's a possibility or maybe a little bit younger as well. Okay, let's one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you have a question or a scenario uh, to run by Stephen Potts, a specialist in family law today, as we talk about children and as we talk about wills, uh, Steve, let's talk some more complications here. Uh, what happens? Uh, when I guess we've been talking about you know the family home, but what happens when there's the extra complication of a business that's part of the family uh, when there's either a death of one of the parents? Uh, or there's separation issues involved, uh, what happens to businesses in this case? Yeah, well, a lot of it will depend on the nature of the way the business is owned. So lots of people might operate a business as a sole trader. They might be a, a tradesperson. They might be a plumber or something like that, where a lot of the skill is dependent upon them. So their death means the end of the business. But there might also be other businesses where the business is owned by a, a company and the the the, the um, couple in the in the relationship are directors or shareholders of the company. So what you have to think about there is okay, who owns the shares? Because that's actually what's being given under the estate. So it's the company. Let's just take a uh, an example. You, you might operate a um, a fast food business. You might operate a sandwich bar, something like that. That might be owned as a company. 
and um, the shares in that company might be between you and a spouse. So you need to make sure that your shares, for example, go to your spouse so that the spouse can continue to operate that building, uh, that, that business, sorry, because the, the, the assets of that business are owned by the shareholders of that company. So you've got to make sure that the right thing is being given. You can't give the, you know, the sandwich toaster in that business to your, to your wife or your, your partner. You've got to make sure that the shares in that business are given. And it gets more complicated when people own businesses through a trust structure because that's a very common way of running family businesses. It allows you to stream income between different classes of beneficiaries and be a lot more uh, flexible in the way you run the business. But the ownership of the assets is not by you as an individual. It's owned by the trustee of the trust. Now, you might also be the trustee of the trust, but they're still not your personal assets and therefore they're not something you can give away under your will. What you need to give away is the power to appoint the new trustee so that that person can control where the assets go. Now, let's not let this get away on us here because a lot of people have their family tax arrangements Mm. uh, through a family trust and uh, operating businesses and owning all sorts of uh, property and uh, those sorts of things. So what you're saying here is you can't leave this unattended. It's who is appointed to have the authority over those. Absolutely, because it can be a real nightmare if they're not Put in place. So let me give a really simple example. If, if someone's running a business through a trust, the trust will probably have some default rules about what would happen if no nomination's been made, and that would contr- that would nominate who gets control of the trust. Now, um, that might be somebody completely outside your immediate family, depending on how that trust structure has been set up. And so whilst you thought you were making provision for your family, the control of that legal entity goes off to somebody else and they might not have your family's best interests at heart or they may not be aware of all of the considerations that need to be taken into account. So in that kind of a situation, it's really important to speak both with your accountant and also with your lawyer to make sure that everybody's clear on who owns what, uh, how it's all going to be mapped out so that uh, if you were to die, the people who step in as your executors know where everything is, what your intentions were, Make sure that the structure matches up with your intentions. Otherwise, it can be disastrous. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. Well, an important conversation we've been having this hour and as we try to draw some loose ends together, talking about children, talking about wills, talking about what happens when the uh, what you might call an ideal family changes, if there's a separation and divorce, or if one of those partners dies and the other partner remarries. Stephen Potts is our guest, family law specialist. Steve, when we talk about wills and the sorts of foundations that need to be in place, uh, those things that are, you know, you just can't go without having these things looked after. And, uh, and for lots of us, there's going to be these things we'll need to review in our own wills. But when you're talking to people, uh, what are you saying are the most essential elements that must be included to understand how your will is going to take the most uh, beneficial effect for your children? Sure. So a couple of really key things. We talked about the role of the executor, and I, I would echo there what I said about guardians, which is appoint someone you trust, but also think about coming down a generation because there's a real risk that by the time that you die, somebody of your generation who you've appointed as an executor may also have died 
or have lost capacity. So it's important to come down a generation so that there's still somebody there who can carry on the, the, the terms of your will. The second thing is with your with your beneficiaries, the people who are going to receive that benefit, think about the same thing. If you're, if you're nominating a spouse, there's every chance that your spouse might have passed away by the time you die. So have a think about coming down generations or other people who might be uh, dependent upon you. So those are two really key issues. The third thing is to have a think about what effect changes in your life, uh, particularly in relationships, might have on your will. If a person separates, if a marriage breaks down and the person has separated but has not divorced, the terms of their old will, which might have named their spouse, continue to apply. Now, you might say, well, hang on, I don't really want to particular, particularly give my money to that unfaithful spouse or something like that. I'd rather that money go to my children. Well, that won't happen unless you've made a new will because a separation in and of itself is insufficient to do that. So it's important in a situation like that to go back and revisit it. And there's probably two other things that we really do need to have a chat about, which is uh, decision-making while you're alive through an enduring power of attorney and the difference with your superannuation. So if I could just quickly mention that. Sure. An enduring power of attorney is, is different to a will. It covers decision-making while you're alive. So that means decision-making about financial issues, signing on your behalf, transacting on your behalf, things like that, and decisions about your health. Who can, who can make decisions about your personal care, the medical treatment that you might give, all of those kinds of things. Typically, those documents will kick in to operation when you have lost capacity, and they will always terminate when you die. So you need to have a think about who's going to be in a position to make decisions about your health care, about your assets, and whether you want to give them those um, powers while you're alive through an enduring power of attorney. Same thing I said about relationship breakdown. If the relationship breakdown happens... Uh, you should change your will. You should immediately change your enduring power of attorney. It's one of those uh, things that you've just got to do. And it's, it, it, enduring powers of attorney, I think, will become a, a really big issue in the years to come as we live longer, but um, we might live with incapacity for longer as well. If we're getting our will in place, and uh, as we mentioned, there's a number of ways to do that, and uh, you're suggesting that certainly go to a lawyer uh, who'll know those questions that you don't know to mm-hmm. ask, uh, will the enduring power of attorney uh, attorney question uh, come up when you're preparing your will? Almost certainly, because there's so much overlap between the two. Because, like I said, because so many people live longer but may live within capacity decisions are going to need to be made about where they go into care and things like that. And you mentioned superannuation. There's an issue with superannuation that we all need to be aware of. Yeah, that's right. Um, superannuation is typically not part of your estate. Um, most of your, most of us would probably have seen you can nominate a beneficiary on the super policy and that person will receive, or those people might receive the benefit on your death. That money typically does not form part of the estate. So it's often used with second marriages. People might say, well, my assets go to my new spouse, but I want my superannuation to go to my children. And the thing to remember with super is that many people will have not just their member balance in their super, the money that's contributed by your employer and the the benefit that um, accrues on that as as interest is made, but also an insurance policy. So many people have a total and permanent disability policy or a death benefit policy, and that amount of money can be several hundreds of thousands of dollars. You might have, say, $20,000 in your super, but you might have a half a million dollars in an insurance policy. You've got this huge sum of money, and it's not going through your estate. So it's really important to know, have I made a nomination about that superannuation? And if I have, where is it going to? Because lots of people sign it up when they start a new job, and they forget about it. 
Okay, and that's very, very important. As time has basically run out, uh, you did mention early in our conversation, Steve, uh, that different states have different regulations Mm. around some of these issues that we've been talking about today. Uh, Important, say, if you're in Western Australia listening to us this morning, uh, that maybe you see a Western Australian lawyer. Absolutely. uh, Or in South Australia, Tasmania, that these these variations uh, could be uh, slightly different. So, uh, so make the point to actually contact a lawyer. That's right. And make sure it's somebody in your state who's going to be familiar with the legislation in your state. Okay. And when you're having the appointment with the lawyer, uh, let me ask you, uh, you know, you want to minimize cost yep. uh, and you want to maximize the benefit of your time with the lawyer. Uh, is there anything that you need to know? Is there a, you know, a, a rule of thumb? This is what you do in and out. Got it all solved. The, the most important thing is to have thought in advance about who you trust you know, the questions of trust are fundamental to drafting a will. You've got to know who you trust and who who is dependent upon you and who you need to make sure that you've benefited, who you're giving a benefit to under the will. That's really important. Um, the more of that that you have, well, more thinking along those lines you've done before you get together, the easier it is for a lawyer to then be able to step in and advise you. And, and think about, don't just assume this is how we own the house or don't just assume this is how we run the business. Actually go back and check the documents. My job as a lawyer is a lot of the time is spent going back and checking the documents because people weren't clear. So you would actually take with you to your appointment with the lawyer a whole lot of uh, this sort of basic detail uh, that makes the process of getting that will and the enduring power of attorney all in place and you can walk away uh, just knowing that you've got those bases covered. That's right. The more you can bring, the um, easier it's going to make a lawyer's job to actually prepare it for you. Okay. Okay. Thank you so much to Steve. Just to mention quickly, we did have a Facebook comment from Karen who says, my husband and I have done our will on one of those will kits you get from the news agency. Do we need to get one professionally done or is that going to be okay? Also, do we need to redo our will if one of the two witnesses has passed recently? A very quick response uh, on that one, Steve. Um, it would always be a good idea to update your will if circumstances have changed. The death of a witness in and of itself wouldn't invalidate the will. But um, if there were ever questions arising about that will, you won't be able to get evidence from that witness. So it, it's always prudent to um, keep it up to date. Thank you so much to Karen for making your Facebook comment. Uh, Steve Potts, family law specialist. He's also managing director of Newman and Turnour Lawyers in Brisbane. Now, there is a website for Newman and Turnour Lawyers. Uh, You can be in touch with Steve directly, ntlawyers.com.au, ntlawyers.com.au. Steve, always appreciate your insights. Thank you so much for being part of 2020 today. Thanks for having me. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.